we are going to finish the book of Nehemiah tonight, Nehemiah chapter 13. I know we should have done it last time, uh, but I have the last few verses. Uh, your notes start on verse 4, chapter 13, verse 4. And I just want to review, Nehemiah is in the uh, midst of reform. He's gone away uh, and has returned. He's come back for his second term. Uh, we're guessing around 430 B.C., that's not for sure. Uh, but he was there for a 12-year period before Artaxerxes sent him, asked him to return, and now Nehemiah has come back around 430 uh, for this second uh, term as governor. Uh, the first thing we see that he comes back, and that's the page one of the notes, is Tobiah, uh, the, the Ammonite, is in the temple chambers. He's in the temple, and uh, there's three enemies that he basically has, if we can say three or four. You've got Jerusalem here, the Dead Sea here, Galilee. This is Samaria up here, which is northern, former northern Israel, but it's taken over. The Gentiles were moved in by the Assyrians. They've intermarried, which is exactly what's going to be coming up to the verses tonight. These guys are, are half Jewish, the remnant that was left behind in northern Israel. And the other half was deported out and scattered. Not deported, just dispersed. Uh, then they brought in a bunch of Gentiles, and they just intermarried. And so by this time, the Samaritans have a Jewish heritage, but they're half Jewish, half Gentile, and they don't even have the full Bible. And so they're not the remnant that has returned from Babylon. These guys have been taken away. Just like in Jeremiah, it says, these are the ones I've taken away. I'll bring them back and rebuild Israel, rebuild the people. This is the remnant. And so they've got, their, they've got to have their genealogies. If you're a priest, you've got to have your genealogy. They know their tribes. They know where they're from. There'd be people from all the different tribes because they all, some of them moved south in 701 to join Judah because this was getting overrun by the Assyrians. So when they went captive. All the tribes have gone and all the tribes have come back. But they've got over here, you've got the Moabites. You've got the Ammonites. And then over here, you've got the Philistines. And this is tonight is going to be called the Ashdodites, because that's the city, a Philistine city, Ashdod. So these are what they're surrounded. From Samaria, they've had trouble with a guy, the governor. Remember, Nehemiah is the governor. He's got power. He's got authority. He's got the Artaxerxes, the Persian government, in his court. But also, so does this guy. Sanballat is the governor of Samaria. So Nehemiah and Sanballat are, Sanballat, are co-equals in a sense. They're both sent by the governor. So that Sambalit's been a problem throughout this. Over here in Ammon, you've got a guy named Tobias. That's some of the leader over there. Then you've got the Moabites here and Ashdod here. Uh, when we start at chapter 13, when he gets back in 430, when he comes back for his second term, he had everything organized, set up. The walls had been built. People had populated the city. Levites were functioning. The storehouses were full of food to provide for the Levites. The trumpet players, the, the musicians, everybody was functioning. He goes away, and it all collapses, probably because of the influence of Sanballat, Tobias, and these guys didn't want to lose this power base here, and they start infiltrating, and the people and the priests and Levites just give up. They just let them come on in. They probably have, probably have some kind of sweet deals for them, tax breaks, so get to be part of the community, whatever. And when Nehemiah comes back in 430, he finds out that this guy, Tobias, is actually in the temple. He is in the temple courts, got a room in the temple, and uh, that's where it talks about this. It says he throws his stuff out outside, cleans the place out, and that's basically verses uh, go four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. He said, verse eight, he says, I was very angry. I threw out the household items of the furniture. Uh, turn the page, page two. The next thing, beginning in chapter 13, the other problem they had was the Levites were not supported and the temple was neglected. This temple that Tobias had moved into when Nehemiah had left uh, after his first term, he left things up and functioning. The Levites were in position, the priests were in position, the storehouse were full, they'd gone out, the Levites were collecting tithes, bringing it in because they're supposed to work in the temple and they need to food, have food so the people bring their tithes. The whole mosaic system is set up on like this, that you've got the, tri the Le Levitical tribe with the priest being provided for to keep the worship and the knowledge of the temple and the law uh, functioning. Well, they stopped paying the tithe or they stopped collecting the tithe or somehow it got neglected, it got negotiated away. I, we're not sure exactly how it happened, but Tobias, the Ammonite, is living in the temple. 
He's living in one of the chambers in the temple, and the storehouses are empty. In fact, he's living in a storehouse. I mean, you know, it's, he's got furniture and stuff in there. But the temple has completely flip-flopped. It's no longer even, you can't even imagine it being used for sacrifices or singing. Is it a courthouse? Is it Tobias and they're having meetings here? Is it, is it the United Nations? Is it some kind of world community center that they've set up? I, I don't know. But when Nehemiah gets there, he throws Tobias out and then realizes in chapter 13, verse 10 on page 2, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. They were there to work, but they couldn't stay. They couldn't stay in the ministry. They had to flee out here in Judah somewhere to fields to make a living. Uh, so I confronted, and again, that word confronted, I put it in a box. It's going to come up again for the third time tonight. It's the word rib. It, it means confront. It means to you know, have a con con conflict with. It, it can refer, and most likely, it refers to a legal case. He's going to bring charges, legal charges against them. So I confronted the officials and said, and this would be his acquisition, why is the house of God forsaken? That would be coming against two layers of laws. You're going to have uh, the laws of the Persians that Ezra and Nehemiah are functioning under, but also the law of Moses that they've established their community on. And then you've got a higher law, the law of God. So they're in violation in the Persian world, in the Jewish courts, and in front of God, which ultimately they're there for Chapter 13, verse 12, Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouse. So they got it all filled back up. Chapter 13, verse 13, And I appointed his treasures over the storehouse. He gives you a name of the people he appointed. He appointed Shelemiah, the priest. He appointed, again, I thought we already took care of this. Before he left, this was all up and running. Well, now he's putting these people back in positions, which means they've been moved out. And then you still wonder, what was Tobias doing? Was he like the secretary? Was he like the priest what, what was he doing uh but you got sephaniah the priest or selamiah the priest zadok the scribe pediah the levite and then an assistant named hanan and then he ends that part by saying remember me O my god concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that i have done for the house of my god and for his service now the book is going to end the same way tonight where he's saying this is what i've done and i'm doing this not because I'm the governor. I'm not doing this because I've got this high position. I'm trying to make a name for myself. I'm doing this because this is the right thing to do. Remember me. I'm not getting any rewards here. I mean, imagine how many he's got enemies here. Tobias, does. he's an arch enemy. Sanballat, a governor right next to him, is an arch enemy. The Moabites, the Ashites, all the people are upset with him. And so now he's thinking, I'm doing this for the Lord. And that's where we left off last week. In those days I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath, out around in Judea, people were working on the Sabbath. So he, he puts a stop to that. I warned them. Then you have the people of Tyre coming in to sell here out by the, the fish gate, trying to sell outside the gate. And he ends up threatening harm to them. Uh, chapter, page 4, at the top of the page, chapter 13, verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? As soon as it began to grow dark, so he does this, he makes it impossible for him to function. He shut the gates and guarded the gates. He's going to use his own guards. Eventually he's going to use the Levitical guards so you can't do it. And I stationed some, in chapter 13, verse 19, and I stationed some of my servants. And he says, my servants, that would be Persian guards, uh, at the gates that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. So he shuts the gates and puts a military by it. Chapter 13, verse 20, then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. So for a couple of weeks in a row, they let him shut the gates and guard them, but they just started camping outside the gates. They're not, they're not cooperating. These people are not cooperating. They're not saying, oh, Nehemiah is doing a great work here in our city. They're opposing him. Uh, so he warns them once, he warns them twice, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do it again, I will lay hands on you, which means my military will attack you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. So the Gentiles stayed away on the Sabbath because they're not interested. They're not the Gentiles aren't violating a law. That's not part of their culture, but they're bringing it into the Jerusalem. 
Then I commanded the Levites that should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. You've got a picture right there of the trumpeting stone that was found. It'd be on this corner of the temple right here. Actually, here it extended the temple down this way a little bit further. So that, that, that trumpeting stone, you can see it's, it's a corner. It'd be right here, the railing on this corner, further down here on Herod's temple. And it was pushed over during the Roman destruction. But it says right there, um, for the place of the trumpeting, or that's where the trumpeter would stand right there. It's a railing, but there's a little place you can step right up to the railing, and they would sound their trumpet. You see in Jerusalem, blast the trumpet to uh, declare the beginning of the Sabbath or the end of the Sabbath or the new moon, whatever the festival was. Then they, they found that right there. That's, that's legitimately from, that's where the priests stand. Some, I mean, at least I do, James was pushed from the Temple Mount, author of James. I think that's probably where he was standing. They took him up there, and he was supposed to make a public announcement, James, in 63 AD, from there to tell everybody coming in for the, the feast that Jesus was not the Christ and was not the Son of God, something to that effect. And instead, he declared that he was the Christ, that he was the returning king, and they pushed him, and he falls oh, all the way down. So James may have fell from this stone. Okay, but anyway, that, I just put that there because that's where the trumpeters would have made their announcement. Uh, that's not the same stone because the new stone would have been out here further. Chapter 13, verse 22, bottom of page 4. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates. Uh, and so now, instead of having his Persian guards, he's going to have the Levites and their trained military to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love, meaning based on the covenant. Now the new material, verse 23. And again, amazingly, and I hope I can do this justice and grab some information here for you, bring this to life. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. They married women from Ashdod, this would be Philistine, Ammon over here in Tobias territory, and Moab down here. They brought in women and married them here. We're going to find by the end of the chapter they're also marrying Samaritan women. Now, Understand this, this, is, this has nothing to do with race. This has nothing to do with one group of people is better than another group of people. In fact, you can find in Jesus' genealogy, uh, 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 Rahab, the Canaanite, who became a believer and was married into Jesus' genealogy. Uh, you've got Ruth, who's a Moabitess. She married into Boaz's family, and she is the grandmother of David. So Jesus' genealogy has got a, a Canaanite from Jericho, a Moabite, uh, and we could go on and look at other examples. Uh, but these women, the difference, these foreign women that were not Jewish, they became believers, or they were believers. Rahab was a believer. Ruth became a believer, following Naomi's God. That was the turning point. And it seems that even in the Old Testament, that even in the Law of Moses, there was a way that a Gentile could join Israel by accepting the law, coming in and joining with them and practicing their religion. They, they, there was a ritual. Now, they would never be a Levite. They would never be a priest. They would never be a king. But you could be the people of God. So understand, first of all, any woman... That or man that wanted to join Israel could join Israel. But for that to take place, Israel would have to be able to identify themselves as Israel and be able to say, no, we cannot join with you because you think, believe differently than we believe. Now, if that's the case, and the woman, the man, in this case, the woman says, yes, but I believe I'm a follower of Yahweh and proves themselves to be like the people of Israel... We've got example after example of these people joining Israel, being welcomed, and becoming part of the nation. There's examples. So this is not a racial thing. This is a philosophical thing. This is a, a religious thing. This is a covenant. These people, Israel, have a covenant with God that none of the, the Moabites do not have a covenant. When the Moabites fail and they, they go through the fourth cycle of discipline, the Moabites will be eliminated from history. Same thing. The Ammonites will be eliminated from history. Edom's a whole book 
Obadiah, the whole book of Obadiah is telling them, Obadiah is telling Edom, I know you're Jacob's brother, uh, Esau, but uh, you're going to be destroyed. You're, you're never coming back. Malachi is going to begin, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. What's that mean? That means he's got a covenant, God has got an unconditional covenant with Jacob. That he'll discipline them, but he'll always bring them back. They cannot violate that. He'll always restore them because he's, got, he's made a promise. Esau does not have that covenant. Neither does the United States of America. When the United States of America goes away to Moab or Ammon or Edom, they're gone. Now, you can be a Christian, you can be a believer, but you are not a special people with a covenant with God outside the new covenant individually with Jesus Christ within the church. That's another conversation. So the ideal here is you can't have these people marrying in, bringing their, their false religions, their false gods, their false philosophies, marrying in and corrupting. Now, if these guys were truly following the law, uh, the word, following God, it'd be easier for someone, a, a woman from Moab to join them because here's the example. But are these people following the law? I mean, Nehemiah goes away. And they stop taking care of the temple. They stop the temple worship. They bring an Ammonite into here. Uh, the whole thing is collapsing. They've stopped paying their tithe. They're not even taking care of the, the priesthood or the Levites, let alone following the law. And who's going to enforce the law? The priests and the Levites. So the people are running wild. So there's not even, it's, the sad thing is, there's not even an option for an Ammonite woman or a Moabite woman to join these people because they are totally in darkness themselves. So you can blame Nehemiah or blame Ezra, but if these people were walking in the light, they could possibly absorb someone and they could convert them and join with them. Nonetheless, that is not an option here. No foreign women. Uh, and that's what you've got right here. In those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, here's just some details. The women of Ashdod, that's over here, the Philistine coast. That'd be the Gaza Strip today. Um, women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. The Ammonites worshiped the god Molech, a god that was honored with child sacrifice. That's in Leviticus, 2 Kings. So the Ammonites right here, they honored Molech. Now, we know this because the Bible records it. We know this because Solomon is going to already make this mistake. He's going to bring women from all these different countries, including Egypt, and bring them in. And he's going to not just build the temple, he's going to build temples and shrines for their gods, including Molech, Chemosh. Uh, and, and it says very clear in the Bible, in fact, Nehemiah is going to refer to it, and his wives led him astray. There's nothing wrong with Rahab marrying into the Jewish line as long as she absorbs the Jewish ways. But if Rahab marries in and then draws the people out into the Canaanite ways, that's, that's why God is saying no. And Solomon violated that, and he led the nation. In fact, the nation had reached its, its largest po uh, expansion in David and then Solomon's reign. But because Solomon did that, the kingdom was torn away from him from during his son's reign. And you got northern Israel with Jeroboam and Solomon's son Rehoboam with basically Judah and Benjamin. And it was because they intermarried with these women, not because they're racist, but because they're believers. And if they're going to join, you've got to conform. And they're not, well, they're known they're not conforming. Uh, 2 Kings 23 verse 13 tells us that Josiah, during his reign, say, you know, six. 2610 uh, had to cleanse out the land because of, watch this, of Solomon's practice of bringing foreign women into Mary. Here's the text right here, 2 Kings 23, 13. The king, Josiah, defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption. So the, that would be the, the Mount of Olives. I'm looking for some kind of a map. Here's the Mount of Olives right here, and they would be south down in this area down here he defiled them he went off and he did something to them that made them unfit for sacrifice this is josiah violating or uh, desecrating the pagan altars where they offered child sacrifices solomon brought it in josiah's kind of clean uh, i've seen an altar like this in arad uh, in, in south of jerusalem probably right about here put a dot right there right about there 
Uh, you can see the shrine. You can see the, the altar. You can see the stone on the altar. But it had been buried. The reason it's still there was it had been buried, covered up in dirt and buried until they started excavating the city and started excavating. What's in here? And it's like, oh my gosh, a buried temple. And in there, in the holy place that was there, or it's in the Hope for Mary's last generation. I got a photo of it. Uh, and it's on my website. There was two stones in the most holy place. One was the Yahweh stone, and one was his, his wife, Asherah. So There's two stones, because he had a male and female god in a shrine right here that the pagans, paganized Israel would have set up, and Josiah, possibly Hezekiah, covered up. And there's several places like that. So that's what it means right here. Uh, that King Josiah defiled the high places, those are the pagan shrines, that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Sidonians. That Sidon would be up here, the Phoenicians. They helped build the temple. And of Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. That's Chemosh, the god there. So they brought their gods with them. This was Solomon. This was 400 years after Solomon. 400 years. We don't have anything in America that old. 400 years later, there's still shrines around Jerusalem uh, in Judea from Solomon's wives that had brought over and it led them astray uh, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Asheroth the abomination of the Sidonians for Chemosh the abomination of Moab and Milcom uh, that's Molech uh, the abomination of the Ammonites so Molech Milcom it's the same name Archaeology, this is now archaeology, and inscriptions from, the, from Ammon, from this area, confirm this. Not only does the Bible say it, but there's been inscriptions from 8 to 600 B.C., this very time period, honoring Milcom, or Molech. A text from the Ammonite Citadel, it's called the Ammonite Citadel inscription. It talks about, uh, it attests that the children were offered on these altars. Children were offered alive on these altars to the god of the Ammonites, Molech, or the Moabites, Chemosh, and they brought that practice. We're talking about sacrificing human sacrifices, children being offered alive on the altars. Uh, and then point D, Moab worshiped Chemosh and sacrificed their children. That's recorded in Numbers 21 and 2 Kings 3. Going back to the days of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, we went through that, 760 to 710 B.C. So think, seven, he's up north. Hosea is ministering up here in northern Israel uh, before they fell. And they're going to fall during his ministry, 760 to 710. They're going to fall in 722. But he writes, he writes there, I've got Hosea in, in point two. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim, the, the tribe of Israel, mixes himself with the peoples, the nations. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. He's intermarried. He's chosen of God for the purpose of God with the word of God, but he's brought in these other foreign philosophies and foreign religions, and he's being devoured by these foreigners, and he doesn't know it. You're, you're losing the promise of God because you're becoming just like the Gentile. He's called these people out for a different purpose. These nations are going to come and go, but they're running down Israel. And again, during that ministry... Israel was taken and deported by the Assyrians. Interesting, are you ready for this? Next time we meet, next week, uh, we're going to start the book of Malachi. Now Malachi, I've got that dated like in framework, and we'll talk a little bit about when to date it, but I date Malachi in the framework book as being a prophet in 432. We don't know for sure. It's, it's after Ezra and Nehemiah, but how far out it is, where to, if it's 432... And this is, and again, we estimated Nehemiah going back and then and when he returned. It's going to be right around 430. So what you have right here, potentially, and if you just go hard numbers right here, and these aren't hard numbers, you've got Nehemiah coming back for his second term around 430. And who's been prophesying for two years? Malachi. Or somehow, but they're, they're an overlap. And that, that's, some, that's not absolute, but it's very, very close. And when you read Malachi, and I'll read a little bit of it tonight, you're going to see how close the situations are. Remember, the temple's been abandoned. The priests aren't being taken care of. Uh, they're intermarrying. But uh, Malachi, that's point three. 
Malachi was a prophet about this time. The date of Malachi is not set, but it was after Ezra's return and likely during the time of Nehemiah. First or second term? I think second term. If we place Malachi 432 B.C., and I have for years, then Malachi's prophetic ministry would be speaking to the same issue as Nehemiah. So when we read Malachi, it's going to be right at this time. In fact, there's a verse that says they're bringing corrupt sacrifices like sick animals or not perfect animals to the Lord in the temple. And Malachi says, you, can't, you think God's going to accept the second class, the sickly animal? It's like, I don't think so. Then he says, try bringing that to your governor. See, you're going to provide your governor with that. And that's what he says in the text. Now, who the governor is, it could be, they have a governor, because it's during the Persian time. Uh, but they could be referring to Nehemiah. It's like, do you think Nehemiah would accept this? But that's, that's speculating. Um, Malachi addresses, on bottom of page 5, Malachi addresses these issues and accuses the priests and people of these things. The priests of not honoring God. He accuses the priests of not honoring God. That's where Nehemiah is at. The people of unlawful marriages. That's, now remember, Ezra's already dealt with this, and Nehemiah's still dealing with it. Malachi is going to have to address it. People having given up on the Lord's return. That's interesting. The people of failing to give properly to, the, to God. In other words, they stopped bringing in the tithe. And that's exactly what Nehemiah's, the, the priests have left. Now, are you ready for this? This, this is going to tie together something that maybe you know, but all of a sudden, all of a sudden, oh, because, if you, if you allow me, when Ezra, ah, where's that at? I've got, it, I've got it written in there. Yeah, go to top of page, before we go to page six, go to top of page seven. Because when Ezra shows up in 458, remember he goes in and he finds out what? He finds out that they've intermarried with the Gentiles. He came back to build up with the law, teach the people the law of God, the word of God, and build up God's people and restore Israel for God's purpose. And when he gets back, it's like, where are you? Oh, we're here. No, but you've, you've married, there's Gentiles here. You guys don't even speak Hebrew. It's like, so, well... Ezra, in 458, was very upset. Here's what he does. After these things had been done, the officials, I'm on top of page 7 of my notes, the officials approached me and says, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. I repeat once again, we've got examples of Ruth the Moabite, of Rahab the Canaanite coming in, but becoming people of God and raising their children in the heritage of Yahweh, of the law of Moses. So that's, that, 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 that's a, a hurdle that we can get over. But they're just indiscriminately bringing women in and in a sense just throwing away their heritage. Uh, daughters to be their wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy race, and that's it, holy race, holy seed, has mixed itself with peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. And then he says, as soon as I heard this, look what Ezra does. I tore my garments, my cloak, I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And he ends up going into one of the chambers of someone's house because it's like, and people came and looked at him and he's just sitting there on the mountain. Tore, I mean, I've never done it, but imagine pulling hair. I, I always tell kids when I was teaching school about girls getting their hair caught into a wood lathe or something and pulling it out. And I did have a situation once with a, a buffing wheel, uh, punch. It flop, 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 and it had a little bald spot. Uh, or pulling out a beard hair. Imagine, he's doing it to himself, pulling hair, not like one at a time, but like pulling chunks out. Uh, and people come and watch him because like, what are you so upset about? And he's upset that, in a sense, he's failed. It's like we, our mission, everything we've been through all these years, and I've come back to teach, and it's, it's, it's falling apart. Okay, now 28 years after the priest and scribe respond to the intermarrying of the Jews with the Gentiles by tearing his garments, pulling hair from his beard and head and sitting appalled, Nehemiah is faced with the same thing. So this is going to be 28 years later. You see that right there? Four, it's been 28 years since that episode with, ne with Ezra. Now Nehemiah is in the same position. Um, 
Now, what, what Ezra did was he, as a scribe, he made a law, he made a rule. He demanded that everyone separate. We know if you're a foreign woman, go back to Samaria, go back to the Ammonites. No. We got, uh, yeah, happy little family, but that, that's a Canaanite woman. Get her out of here. Now, that sounds bold, and that's phase one of the action, but understand these are, these are families. Now, again, it doesn't say anything. I mean, you've always read this. I always have read this. And I always think, what would James Dobson do? I mean, it's like, focus on the family. Not this one. Not that one. That's a wicked family. Break them up. And it's like, it sounds like a true Ezra move, a scribe, the law, follow the letter. Uh, and you can send the woman away, but the question, what happened to the children? Well, that's, we're purifying the race. Well, if you stop and take a breath right here, you know how you purify the race is you prepare the next generation. You can't just send everybody away because you just killed the process. You've got to take and have a reformation. You've got to take and have a revival. You've got to take and instruct. You've got to take what you've got and lead it in the right way. Now, I'm not saying Ezra's wrong, but it's possible that 28 years later, or if Malachi was written in 432, 26 years later, uh, they've got a different view. It's like, yeah, I was around back, I was around 25 years ago. I've, I know some kids in my class that went through that, and it didn't work out like Ezra thought. He thought he was going to purify the race, and we got just, well, what you just imagine, broke, everybody's got broken home. And it's going to now talk about that, not specifically, but it's the second generation. In other words, what are you doing for the kids, the children? Now watch what, we know what Ezra did. He saw it, pulled out his beard, tore his clothes, sat on the temple mount and mourned, and then made a rule, divorce. Everybody just separate. We're going to go back and start over. And then you got the, the remains of that damage. Okay, so let's go back to page um, page 6 at the top. Malachi now, if, if he's writing after Ezra, which would make sense, I'm not sure exactly what year it is, but it's after Ezra, probably right around Nehemiah's time. Here's what he writes in 4, if it's 432 is right, after Ezra's actions of 458, Malachi writes, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife, by covenant, the covenant of marriage, not the Mosaic covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Now, what, again, I, I'm not trying to over, I'm just trying to put this in context. What he might be saying is, yes, we've got a covenant with Yahweh, but you also had a covenant with this woman, the covenant of marriage, which was also established by God in the Garden of Eden, before the covenant of Mosaic covenant and before the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of marriage was established. And he says, this is the wife of your covenant. Did he not make them one? Did not God approve of a marriage covenant? And look, with a portion of the Spirit in their union. I mean, that union, it's got part of God in it. I mean, if nothing else, he's got a Jewish man that's got Jewish heritage that's supposed to be instructing his wife in the Jewish law. Imagine... Who did, who did uh, 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 Rahab marry? It was one of the spies. Caleb, wasn't it? Was it not Caleb. Who did Rahab marry? Sel Selman. Selman. And, you know, that she's a Canaanite, but yet she married in, and it's like she knew a little bit, apparently, because she knew that the, Lord, the land had been given to Israel, but she didn't. She wasn't. They just got the law of Moses. I mean, the people don't even know the law of Moses. I mean, they just got it. Uh, so she, I mean, she's, how much does she not know? Not a problem. Her husband's going to be able to take her along and keep, and she's in, you know, same thing with Ruth. Ruth comes from the Moabites and probably new friends in her elementary class got burnt on the altar. I don't know. But she comes over and she takes up and she learns from Boaz and she becomes the grandmother of David. So right here, he's saying uh, the, a portion of the Spirit. And then it says here, I've got a line, and what was the one God seeking? What is he looking for in this covenant relationship of marriage? Godly offspring. I need a second generation. I need you to have kids and train them 
in the way of God. This is what Malachi is saying around 432. This is right after 458, where Ezra divided them. Again, I'm just saying this is the way things are flowing. I mean, if nothing else, you do see the conflict. Ezra says, divorce. Malachi comes around sometime in this time frame and says, what are you thinking? That's the wife. You're supposed to be taking care of your wife. You're par- she's part of you. I'm looking for godly children. In other words, it doesn't matter where she comes from. I need you guys to train the children to be godly. Now we're into James Dobbs. Now, again, okay, now James Dobbs can jump on board of this. Uh, so guard yourselves in the spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Malachi saying, so don't do this. And then verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is coming, this is not out of the mouth of Malachi. Of course, he's a prophet anyhow, but he's now quoting as a prophet, quoting the Lord and saying, this is what the Lord says. Uh, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. The idea there, we'll get into that when we get to the of Malachi, but the idea is there is a man would cover his wife with his cloak, with his love, with his covenant and protector. That you're covering, your covering is for protection for the wife. But here, you now take her and then you divorce her and send her away. Well, now your protection has become a protection or a covering of violence or Hamas. You're breaking the family, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now you say, well, we want to be faithful to the law of Moses. You don't have to be faithless to your marriage covenant to be faithful to the Mosaic covenant. Now that's news to Ezra. I'm not trying to overwrite Ezra. I'm just, I mean, because clearly Malachi and Ezra are not preaching the same thing. Uh, So that's interesting that that all kind of fits together. That kind of helps put Malachi right in here, right somewhere in here. Because now watch, here we go. Are you ready? You You saw what Ezra did. He tore his beard out. He's tearing the hair out of his head, out of his beard. He's tearing his clothes. He's sitting just shot. People are walking by going, whoa, taking selfies with him and stuff because they have, what is going on here? And, the whole, and then he comes up, you're all got to get divorced. So people are sending their wives away. Kids are like homeless. Some are going with mom. Some are staying with dad. You know, who wants to stay with dad, you know? But uh, anyway, chapter 13, verse 24. And half their children, in 430, in Nehemiah's time, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, which would be the Philistines, probably some form of Greek, because Philistines were Greek. And they, had, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And that would be, again, common sense, because who's, in most cases, teaching the child to talk? The child is with mom during the ages of, you know, one, two, three. I mean, in our world today, dads take turns. You know, I like being with my boys. But the mom is the one who they're learning. And so if mom is from Moab or Ammon or Ashdod, the child grows up with a a Philistine accent or a Moabite accent. And their second language, if they learn it, is Hebrew. Uh, So they, but only the language of each people. So by, this is 430. This is not 458. This is 430. You've had plenty of time to get people up and running. But even 430, that's after the reforms, after the Levites have done all the reading and they've done all the, uh, the interpreting for the people. Nehemiah comes back after having been there for 12 years, being gone for a couple years, comes back. And it's like, we still can't speak Hebrew. I still got kids that can't. There's no wrong with being bilingual, but you got to speak Hebrew. I mean, yeah, there's nothing, it's not like, well, this is the only language. It's like, no, you can speak all these languages. Jesus spoke probably three, maybe four languages. If it be, you know, Aramaic, Hebrew, uh, he's going to speak Greek. Uh, there's going to be possibly some Latin because, uh, you know, Pilate spoke Latin. So we're not talking about being, you know, closed-minded. We're talking about our core language and our, our religion is Hebrew. And they can't speak it. But the only thing they could speak was the Canaanite, yeah, the Gentile languages. Uh, point one, the children of these women were not learning Hebrew, but instead their mother's native language. Uh, the children of the streets of Jerusalem and in Judah sounded like foreigners and Gentiles running around the streets. The problem with this was not that the children were, were bilingual or spoke a Gentile language, but the obvious fact that if they did not speak Hebrew, then most likely they could not read or understand Hebrew, which when it came to reading the Torah, the law, it's, not, it's like, uh, who cares? No one knows what they're saying. They did not know or understand the law of Moses or the law of the Hebrews. 
They did not keep or follow the law of Moses. So there's no sacrifice. There's no message. But they are learning. They are learning something. They got to learn about ancient history. Where did the world come from? Where are they learning it from? Oh, the Moabite traditions, the, the Ammonite, the Ashdodites. Ash uh, they're not learning the Genesis account. They're learning some other account. Which means the second generation is becoming worse than the previous generation. And Nehemiah says, this is not working. They did not worship, at least not correctly, on the temple mount. They may have worshipped on the temple mount, but that's not the right. The, the Greeks came in and offered pigs on the altar, but that ain't right. Okay, so what's Nehemiah do with this? Now, he he's already has the Ezra example. He may have the, 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 the prophecies of Malachi echoing in his head. He says, I confronted them. And you notice the word confronted or, content, or contended. I've got it in the box. You know what word that is? It's the word, like we saw it twice last week, rib. It means a confrontation. It can mean a lawsuit. I brought a legal case against them. And it's like he can. He's, he's the governor. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Whoa, whoa. Ezra didn't work. What did Ezra do? He tore his clothes. He pulled his hair. He mourned. He cursed himself. What is wrong? It's like, Nehemiah's like, yeah, if you're a scribe, that's about all you can do. I'm not a scribe. I'm the governor. In fact, I just got back from Artaxerxes' court. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull your hair out. I'm going to beat some of you. Well, here, I'll read it again. I confronted them. I brought a lawsuit. I cursed them in the lawsuit. I beat some of them, and that means, I got it underlined, means to smite, to beat, to wound. That means he physically hit them. Now, if he's out there taking on the crowd, or if he's got the Levites or his Persian troops lining people up and beating them because you violated everything, it's like, well, we didn't know. Ezra made it pretty clear in 458. We all remember that. I made it pretty clear, he'd say, before I left, I had the temple up and running. I had the walls built, re repopulated. Everybody, under, we read the law to you. In fact, you sent some of the wives away back then. So you've done this willingly. Um, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Um, and that's where I've got right there on page, um, top of page 7, I've got what Ezra had done, which is, you see, the, it's just interesting. In a 28-year period, you've got Ezra tearing his clothes, pulling out his hair. 28 years later, Nehemiah is striking the people that married women that weren't, they weren't supposed to, uh, pulling out their hair and their beards and making them, uh, taking a lawsuit and cursing them. And that's all taking place right there. Um, Point B, 2B on page 7. Nehemiah responds with grief, but demonstrates his anguish on the people instead of on himself for the failure of the people in five ways to demand a change and action to preserve the next generation. Confront them, curse them, beat them, pulled their hair, and made them take an oath. And again, understand that's not some vigilante down at the mall. This is the governor. This is the guy coming out of the Persian courts. And he is fighting opposition from countries all around him. Um, again, the different response in the, to the same problem. Ezra was a scribe, Nehemiah is the governor. And also point four, uh, Jesus did both. You see Jesus outside Jerusalem walls, weeping for Jerusalem. But you also saw Jesus later on coming in, making a, sat down and made a whip, drove the people away with his whip, turned over the tables, and cleared the temple. So again, both ways, I would say, are Christ-like. It's like, what would Christ do? Well, he may sit down outside the walls and cry for you, or he may come in and make a whip and drive you out of the temple. It, either way, if you're crying and weeping for people, or you're driving around with a whip, you can say it's both Christ-like. Okay, there's your excuse. I would be very careful with the whipping part, but I'm just saying. In our culture, people put up you crying more than they will whipping, so... Chapter 13, verse 27. Shall we then listen to you? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Verse 26. Did not, here's where he goes to history. He goes back to the text. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. I mean, he's the greatest king. Even Jesus, there's no one like Solomon. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women made even him to sin. 
So it's like you can't get yourself far enough away that you can still come over here and dabble in this without it causing a rift. So he said, we've already seen this. This doesn't work. You can be as patient as you want to, but the kids can't even speak Hebrew. They, they don't even know the law. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Um, and then, oh, what I got, Nehemiah does, I think I've got everything I said there. Um, I think I referred to everything. Uh, interestingly, this, there, that's where this verse comes from in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16.4 on page 8. You know that verse, I hate divorce? Uh, the English Standard Version says, for the, uh, on the top of page 8.4, English Standard Version of Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in spirit and do not be faithless. Uh, now, in the New American Standard, it says, and the King James, it says something like this, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And again, that's just, that's that verse, I hate divorce, is coming in the context of Ezra having enforced divorce and 28 years later, or 26 years later, right in there somewhere, that verse coming up. Okay, the last few verses. Not only that, but the priesthood now is being challenged. Besides that situation, chapter 13, verse 28, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law to Sanballat, the Hornite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Now, Sanballat is a Samaritan. Horonite would mean that's probably his family name or the tribe name from Samaria. But now we're going to get a list. If you look down there on point four, what you have here is Sanballat. Tobiah is a problem. Tobiah is a problem for Nehemiah living in the temple, but he got rid of him, threw his furniture out. But Sanballat's been a problem since the beginning of the book, and Sanballat is also a governor. Like Nehemiah is a governor, Sambalet is a governor, so they're co-equals. And so whenever uh, 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 Nehemiah would make a presentation to Artaxerxes, Sambalet's got the same opportunity. So this is a little bit different. And Sambalet has done a brilliant maneuver here. He has sent his daughter, since everybody's sending their daughter into the land, he sent the governor of Samaria, sent his daughter to marry the high priest's son. So Sambalet probably Nehemiah's number one enemy has sent his daughter to marry the high priest's son, which makes the high priest's son the son-in-law of Sambalay, but also the high priest's daughter-in-law is Sambalet's daughter. So you've got Sambalet who's married into the priestly line, a brilliant move. Now, what do you do with this? Um, and one of the sons of, okay, I've got on point four. Uh, there's some priests listed right there, uh, and we could play with that a little bit, but their names, but we know the names of these priests. Um, I, I've got that written there, but uh, okay. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalet, the Hornite. And Nehemiah says, Therefore I chased him from me. Now, when he says me, Nehemiah is centered. In, this is not like he was down here and chewed him out and sent him away. Nehemiah is, this is me. And so he sends him away from me. I would assume when he says I chased him away, that means he's being removed from Judah. This, this son, well, let me re read this again, was the son-in-law, therefore I chased it from me. He chased, the high priest's son is in a sense now disqualified. You've married, you can't marry, even the, even, even the priest had to marry within the priest. You couldn't just marry anybody you wanted. You had to keep the priesthood going. So he's now gone, which means the daughter is gone, or the, the Sambalet, and Sambalet, 
he broke this right here. He separates this right here. Nehemiah separates this bond right here and has broken Sambalay's connection with the high priest. That, that's what he's saying right there. Uh, interestingly, for your own information, uh, the Ele- Elephantine or Elephantine uh, papyrus. Look on page 9. And when, when the Jews in 586 were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, some of them were taken captive. Others were left in the land of Israel. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's the Nile River. Here's the Red Sea. Uh, here's Galilee, Jordan, Dead Sea. Some of them went off into captivity. Some of them remained in the land. But even Jeremiah uh, was taken by force. They fled to Egypt with the fear that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come back and crush them. This is the way the book of Jeremiah ends. And Jeremiah says, they're, never, they're not going to come back. And he's, not, he's already conquered the land. There's nothing here. You're the poor. He just left you here. But no, he'll come back. And, so they, they did, and they told their Jeremiah, well, you go prophet, you go seek the Lord. And they said, whatever he tells you, we will do. So Jeremiah will, goes away, spends some time. Here's from the Lord. He comes back and says, no, you're safe. If you'll stay here, you'll be safe. They say, you've been lying to us for 40 years. He hasn't been. Everything he says has come true. And so they took him by force and they fled to Egypt. The comical thing about that is they got to Egypt just in time for Nebuchadnezzar to, because he's going to just march, he just marched through these lands. He already conquered them. Just marched through these lands and attacked. They lived through the siege of Jerusalem. Then when Jeremiah says, just stay here. He's not going to bother you. God even says so. They say, you're lying to us. They took him by force and went to Egypt just in time to guess what? Live through the siege of Egypt. So they got attacked by Nebuchadnezzar twice. It's, it's funny. It's, it's very funny. Anyway, so those people dispersed, those Jews. And if you see on the top map there, Elephantine, go down this river. Let's, let's put it right here like that on the map. You can see the map better. And I've also got another map. Uh, it's down south of Thebes. But Elephantine, that's where there's a huge Jewish presence. Some people think the Ark of the Covenant's hidden there somewhere. I mean, it's, it's, when you get the list of all, where's the Ark of the Covenant? That's one of the places. Uh, but there's been many things like papyrus and things found there. And here's a page 8. Go back to this. This is off Bible Places. Uh, it's one of the places I follow on social media. Uh, it, you can find it online any place. I just cut and paste this. But from Bible Places, one of Nehemiah's arch enemies was Sanballat, a leader of the Samaritans. This same Sanballat's name has been discovered on the letter from Elephantine that mentions Delaiah and Shelemiah, the sons of Sanballat, the governor of Samaria. So it mentions their names, and Sanballat's name is found down here on a papyrus mentioning Jewish names, and is on a letter sent to Jerusalem, which is just, and you can see, I've got it in a little square, a, a white box there. That is the word Sanballat, that's his name. And so that is from this, that is papyrus, from this time period in Elephantine where the Jews and they're in contact back and forth. Nonetheless, it just kind of brings that whole thing uh, for me. It kind of, you know, brings it together. Um, finishing this up, Nehemiah chased the high priest's son away, which we assume the wife went and Samblay's, uh is broken. Uh, point six on page eight. Interestingly, this is, uh, we're talking 430 right now. Alexander the Great is going to come through in 332. So if, if Malachi is prophesying in 432, he's about 100 years before Alexander comes through and enters Jerusalem. So this rising of the Greeks, that's all in the background of this. I mean, we haven't talked about it at all, but Artaxerxes is ruling with a strong hand here. But in the background, his father, Xerxes, had attacked Greece and lost Esther's husband and came back. And then was assassinated, and Artaxerxes becomes king. So, but Greece is still, they haven't forgotten. And Alexander hasn't forgotten. In fact, Alexander's father, Philip, is assassinated by the Greeks at his daughter's wedding by some of the Greeks because Philip is planning an invasion into Persia. And the Greeks don't want to cross into Asia Minor, we'd call it Asia Minor, Turkey, and go. And so some want to, some don't. They kill him. Well, that leaves a young 20-year-old Alexander to now unite his father's kingdom, and he's brilliant, and he does it, and by the time he, I think he's 30, well, no, no, he's, 
oh, how 20 years old. I, he dies when he's 32 or 33. But uh, he leaves and marches and is in Jerusalem. In four, 332, he's in Jerusalem, Alexander. Worships on the Temple Mount, goes to Egypt, and then goes off and destroys the Persians. So that's how close we are right here. See that? To Alexander the Great coming of the Greeks. Josephus records that uh, when, Nehemiah, or when uh, Alexander the Great gets here, bottom of page 8, Josephus records that Johannes was succeeded as high priest by his son Jadus, and another son married the daughter of Sanballat named Nicasus. Nick, Nick Asos. Nick Asso. Uh, probably something to do with victory. Nike means victory. It's probably something to do with victory. Uh, so there's those names. That's around 332. So the high priests, they continue to marry into Samaria. Even after Nehemiah put an end to this, they do it again. It such a great idea. And Sambalat doesn't give up. Josephus says many other Israelites and priests practice intermarriage around the time of Alexander the Great's invasion. And that would be 332. So you've got this intermarriage in 458 that Ezra makes them get divorced. You've got the intermarriage of 430 that ne uh, Malachi and Nehemiah are dealing with. Uh, you've got the intermarriage of the priests with Samaritans. And in 332, it's still going on. Uh, clearly, the people don't get the concept of being the people of God, and you are dedicated for God's purpose. We're too busy worrying about our best life now, our best life now. And uh, there's those maps on page 9. And then the ending right here, I'll read this. This is a summary of Nehemiah's work in chapter 13, verse 29, 30, and 31. He, he closed his book. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Now, I've done everything I can. Ezra's done everything he can. We leave them in your hands. Remember them, God, because they are the ones that desecrated the priesthood and they desecrated the covenant of the priesthood and the covenant of the Levites. I can't change them. Ezra can't change them. I'll leave them in your hands and don't forget to take care of it, which is kind of where we leave every situation. You do what you can and like, well, judgment day is coming. Tony read me a great psalm. The other, was that Psalm 49? Yeah. Read Psalm 49. She read that to me the other night. It was, it was real good about how the wealthy have all these things and they look like they're ruling and reigning, but when they, when they die, they lose all of that. And maybe you didn't have all these things, but when you die, you've got all of... You've got, all, you've got Jesus Christ. You've got all of eternity. You've got the glorious one. And so people that are faithful to this age right here, when they die, they may, be power, they may intimidate you. They may scare you. They may control you. But when they die, they got nothing. It's over. But you remain faithful to God, even if you're oppressed here, you're overrun here, you don't have here, you stay faithful to Jesus Christ. When you die, you don't lose a thing. You gain the entire kingdom. And that was kind of good. And so that's what Nehemiah is saying right here. Chapter 13, verse 29. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and covenant and the priesthood and the Levite. Meaning, don't let them have anything. I'm adding words to it, but he's saying remember them. Chapter 13, verse 30. Thus. Now what did Nehemiah do? You remember what Nehemiah did? If you go to Sunday school, you ask somebody, Nehemiah did what? Nehemiah built the wall. Built the wall. Ta -da! Built the wall. Remember all the maps. He's closing his book down. And he says at the very end, Lord, remember me because I, I built the wall. No. Chapter th after saying, remember them because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign. I fixed this place. I got rid of all the foreign gods, all the foreign wives. I brought it back. And I established the duties of the priests and Levites. I put the priests back where they're supposed to be. And he did that a couple of times. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. I made sure the wood was there for the sacrifices. I made sure the, the, the storehouses for the priests and Levites were full. He says, remember me, O my God, for good. I have not done anything for myself. As governor, I did nothing for myself. In fact, some of the people, I, I, I oppose the nations. I oppose people. But what I did do is I cleansed the place. I got rid of the foreign. I provided offerings. I provided the first fruits. Now, I have nothing but remember me for good. And what's amazing right there, I write here, obviously, uh, point one, we remember Nehemiah as the man who rebuilt the walls. But Nehemiah ends his book asking God to remember him as the man who cleansed them from everything foreign, established the duties of the priests and Levites, provided wood offerings at the appointed times, and provided for the first fruits. That's what, that, what, were, what were you doing that whole time? 
I was cleansing the place. I had to get the walls built so I could do this. I mean, he, he, he built the walls, but he didn't build the walls and go back. He built the walls, and that whole purpose was for this. And so we remember built, but Nehemiah remembers cleansed, established, provided. And Nehemiah would say, I cleansed, I established, and I provided. That's what Nehemiah would say. And next week, we'll go look at that prophet, Malachi. Start looking at it. Uh, Malachi, our last prophet of the Old Testament. And apparently, you know, he's talking right around this time. It would be interesting to see now. We, don't you wish Nehemiah would have said, like, you know, Malachi the prophet encouraged me. or just And, and thus, Malachi spoke to the people. Or Malachi was there also. Or something to have a confirmation. So we don't have that. But I'm going to play it off like, because it sure sounds like his book, Malachi's book, is aiming right towards this time period. I'll pray, and we are done. I appreciate you being here. Father, we thank you for the chance to look into this. We thank you for your word. We ask that we may not mix ourselves with the world, but we would keep ourselves separated and close to the word of God, that we may do the things you've called us to, that our reward is not here in this age, but in the age to come. Again, we do thank you for the example of Nehemiah and, and the rest of Scripture, and again, ask that we'd be empowered by your spirit to do the things you've called us to in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much for being here.